Good morning. How are we doing today? Come on, that was a little weak. How are we doing this morning? Good. It's a beautiful day outside. How are we doing this morning? Good. Always a real joy to be uh, gathered, for the opportunity to be gathered. It's always a joy and uh, a great opportunity for us to be gathered amongst the people of God, amongst the body of Christ. Um, I personally could not wait. I just couldn't. I couldn't wait to gather with you guys and uh, see your faces in light of all of the uh, recent events that have taken taken place throughout our country, uh, looking in places like Tulsa and places like uh, Charlotte. Uh, my, my hope and prayer is for, for you really has been all week that we would allow the gospel to really bear its weight uh, on us. And um, man, I'm praying for the day that the gospel just shatters racial tension uh, in, in our in our country. Uh, of course, we are those that have trusted in Jesus and have placed their faith in Jesus have um, ha- have been forgiven of sin, but the residue of sin still remains all around us. I mean, we must be agents of change, and that's been my prayer for you all week. That's been my prayer uh, for our church uh, as a as a corporate body that we would be agents of change. We'd be what Matthew five says, salt and light, right? We'd be salt and light in a world that has no salt and light. Are we still working on this? If not, I'm going to switch because it's, uh, I feel like I'm hearing myself here. Um, that we be salt and light, salt and light in this world. Uh, and and, and that, takes, that takes hard conversations, right? And that takes action. I don't know about y'all, but I'm tired of talking. I'm just, I'm tired of talking. Let's get down to action. Uh, Micah 6, 8 talks about uh, what does it says? What does the Lord require of you? Such an important question. And the answer is, but to do justice. Do justice. That means be an active participant in seeing racial tension um, addressed within our country. We can't say, man, the gospel will heal that. Of course, the gospel will heal it. How does it do it? So we need to talk about the workings, and not just talk about it, but we need to be about actions. You can't be the sixth man off the bench as it relates to racial tension. We can't sit on the bench and say, well, five people are on the court. Let them play. No, you must be an active participant. When it says do justice, that doesn't mean sit back and watch, you know, watch what's happening. That means we actually have to be uh, deeply involved in my prayers that the gospel does apply to all of these situations. So um, Jonah chapter three, if you guys could open up, I have no more to say. I am eager to preach eager to get into the Word of God with you. We've been going through a series on the book of Jonah. Uh, if you guys have been tracking along with us, you'll know one of the passions of our church is really to walk through uh, books of the Bible, to walk through uh, step by step. And I, I never run out of anything to say because the Scriptures is just so full of depth. And so my, my heart and my hope and my prayer is that we would, as a church, uh, continue to walk through books after we finish Jonah, my we're going to run through a few series to finish up the rest of the year, starting the top of next year. My, my hope is that we'll be walking through the book of First Peter. Uh, and so uh, track along with us. If you're, if you're not here on a weekly basis, you can check our podcast out. All right, Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter, chapter 3 says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city. Going a day's journey, he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
Verse number five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor, herd nor flock taste anything, but let them, where are we at? But let them, let them not feed or drink water, but let the man, let the beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from his violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that he, that we may not perish. Verse number 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. Listen to these words. And he did not do it. I want to preach from the, the title and topic, Thank God for Another Chance. Thank God for Another Chance. Let us pray. Father, once again, we come to you like every single Sunday morning, pleading desperately for the Holy Spirit to move in this place. Pray that you would penetrate our hearts as we look at the grace that is found in the life of Jonah and the grace that you've extended to a wicked city like Nineveh. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And this morning, we pray that you would illuminate our path. We have no direction outside of your word. And so, Lord, would you guide us through what your word has to say as we walk through verse by verse and line by line. It's in Christ's name and for his glory we do pray. Amen. Thank God for another chance. November 1879, an American um, inventor and businessman by the name of Thomas Edison set out to create uh, his most famous contraption in Menlo Park, New Jersey at Edison's lab. It, it's called the light bulb. We have those in, in our houses. We have those here. Now, those were created not too far from here by a guy named Thomas Edison and his team. So for them to create these light bulbs, it's not like we create them now. It's not like a factory that just pushes out a bunch of light bulbs. In order to create the first one, it took his team literally 24 hours straight to create one light bulb. So the story goes on that he, he, he and his team worked hard to create this light bulb. And at the end of 24 hours after creating this light bulb, Thomas Edison gives this light bulb to a young man and asks him to carry it up the stairs so that they can test the contraption to see if it actually works. So after 24 hours, he gives it to this young man and he walks up the stairs. This is a true story. He walks up the stairs and what you're guessing happened actually happened. He's looking step by step, and he's holding it, and he accidentally drops this light bulb. 24 hours, the men are tired. They're exhausted. They can't believe that this young man just dropped this light bulb that they worked so hard on. Uh, and so they go back downstairs, and they begin. They don't take a break. They don't take a nap. They don't take a rest. They begin another 24 hours straight working on another light bulb, right? I mean, back to back. And at the end of the other 24 hours, this is two days straight, at the end of the other 24 hours, Thomas Edison does something amazing. He gives the second light bulb back to the same young man, asks him to carry it back up the steps. And this time he carries up the steps. He's careful. He's more careful this time, gets to the top of the stairs, and they actually screw it in, and it actually works. Uh, but the, the point I'm trying to pull out of bringing that illustration up to you is because that is exactly what we see in our text today. Thomas Edison 
stepped out on faith and gave this young man a second chance, although he screwed up the first one. And that is what we see in our text this morning, that God is gracious in giving people that have messed up a second chance. Now, I thought you'd be a little bit more excited about that. The reason I thought you'd be a little bit more excited about that is because people that rejoice over a second chance are normally people that know that we messed up the first one. Can we be honest in this room that all of us have messed up at least the first chance, if not the first hundred chances we've messed up, and God has been consistently, consistently gracious to us. The first four verses of chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, shows us the macro mercy of our God that is extended to Jonah. And then verses 5 through 10 show us the macro mercy of God extended to the Ninevites. The entire city of Nineveh is going to be extended another chance. 120,000 people was in Nineveh at this time. Over 120,000 people. I'm getting that from chapter 4. 120,000 people are now going to receive the mercy, the grace of our God. And by the way of a quick recap, those of you who haven't been here, some of our first-time visitors, we've been walking through Jonah. Jonah chapter 1 shows us that God comes to Jonah, says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the evil that has come up before me. Don't y'all, you guys know the story. If you don't, Jonah arises, and he does not go east towards Nineveh, but he goes down to the seaport of Joppa and then goes west, gets on a boat to go west to to Tarshish, modern-day Spain. And as he gets on that boat, the Bible tells us that he's running from the presence of the Lord. Three times it tells us in chapter 1 that he's running from the presence of the Lord. I don't know how you run from the presence of the Lord. Psalms 139, verse 7 through 8 says, Where shall I go from your presence? Where shall I flee from your spirit? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, even there you are there. So there is no running from the presence of the Lord. And so God decides, you know what? I'm going to disrupt his plan. I'm going to hurl a storm. He didn't approve of the storm. He created a storm to put Jonah in. Storm was so so bad that the ship began to break up. The Bible tells us that the, the experienced sailors or the mariners that were on the boat, storm was so bad that they couldn't even weather through the weather through the storm. And I'm sure this wasn't their first storm, but this one was so bad that they couldn't even weather through the storm. You guys know the story. It goes on that they woke everybody up on the ship and said, pray out to your God. Jonah uh, does not pray out to his God in that moment. And they end up saying to him after casting lots and finding out, identifying him as the source of the problem, they then say to him, what shall we do in verse 11 of chapter 1? What shall we do with you that the sea may calm down for us? And Jonah doesn't pray there either. He says, throw me overboard. And so they begin to row harder to try to get back to shore. They couldn't, so they end up throwing him overboard. Need to correct something I said last week. I was listening to the podcast and realized I said the first time Jonah prayed was in the belly of the fish. But actually, the first time Jonah prayed was when he hit the water. Because he says, I cried out in my distress, and he answered me. The answer that God gave him was the fish. So that was God's grace to swallow him up but not consume him. Verse 17 shows us in chapter 1 that then God, he appoints a great fish to, to swallow up Jonah. Jonah chapter 2, which is where we were last week, Jonah chapter 2 records the prayer that Jonah prays while he's in the belly of this fish, which was interesting to us because Jonah did not pray, the, despite the fact that he had many opportunities in chapter 1, didn't pray when the, 
when the captain says, wake up and pray, he doesn't pray there. He, did, he didn't pray when the storm got really tempestuous. He didn't pray there. He didn't pray when they, when they were uh, rowing harder. The first time he prays is when he is in distress. And uh, that, that's kind of where we were. At the end of chapter number two, it tells us in verse 10 that the Lord speaks to the fish and tells the fish to vomit Jonah up on dry land, which would have been, we didn't have time last week, but just the fact that verse number 10 of chapter 2 says to spit him up on dry land really is providential and in many ways uh, it is, um, it is, is important for the story. The reason it's important for the story, like God could have created a big bird, he could have created a big seagull to come down, swoop him up, right, and take him right on into Nineveh and drop him down. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He sends a fish. Why is that important? Because the main worship in Nineveh was a worship called Dagon worship. Literally was the worship of a fish god. Half man, half fish is what they worship. Ancient mythology will tell us that Dagon was the father of Baal. And so they, they worship this fish-like god. If you Google Dagon worship, you'll see these men that look almost like a mermaid, like half a man and half of a, uh, a fish. So do you know how providential that would have been for someone sitting on the shores of Assyria to see a man spit onto the shore, that would have validated his message. They would have said, surely a God has done that. Although they don't know the one true living God, they're going to be introduced to him through the preaching of Jonah. But in that moment that they're sitting on the shore, if they saw him spit up, they would have said, a God is about to speak through this man. Because they worship a worship called uh, Dagon worship. It sounds like I'm saying Dagon worship, but that's kind of what it is. So Jonah's, Jonah's, we can't identify with the details of Jonah's story. Like nobody in here was swallowed by a fish, right? Nobody in here has ever been thrown overboard, I don't think, thrown overboard on a ship. So even though we can't identify with Jonah's experience, the essential truth of Jonah's experience, we can. God wants to give you a second chance just like he wants to give this man a second chance. So maybe you're in here and you've messed up the first one. This story, this chapter, which is a pivotal chapter in the story, shows us that God does want to extend that to you, and it should provide comfort and hope. This chapter should be a warm blanket for everybody in here that has messed up the first time. Look at verse number one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That is so important for us to understand because I've been saying to you guys over and over again for the last few weeks that God really could have wiped Jonah out and got a new prophet and sent him. But God corrected me this week as I was thinking about that, like, God, why didn't you just wipe him out, get you a new one, send Nahum, send him over, let him go ahead and do his thing, and then the whole city would be repenting. Like, you can still work without Jonah. But God corrected me. He didn't need a new prophet. God could have used anything. Like, check God's resume. In order to get Moses' attention, he used a bush. In order to get Balaam's attention in Numbers chapter 22, he uses a donkey to speak. And so God could have literally wrote in the cloud with pink puffy letters, and the entire city would have been saved by looking in the cloud. I'll go a step further. He could have taken the fish that swallowed Jonah, had him plop right on the shore, had him speak the same exact words and go back right back in the water. And I know you're like, well, 
A fish can't speak, but neither could a donkey. And in Numbers 22, we see a donkey speak. God could have used anything. He did not have to use, uh, he did not have to use another prophet, and he sure didn't have to use Jonah. He could have said to Jonah, you disobeyed me. You have been rebellious. I'm going to wipe you out and just do my thing by myself. But he doesn't do that. Our text this morning tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That's good news for all of us in here that know that we need a second chance. We need a third chance. We need a 40th chance. We need a 70th chance. This text gives us good news that if you've made a mistake in here, God is able to forgive you and give you another chance. Give you another chance. Repentance does play a role in that. We don't have time to unpack that, but God is able to forgive you if you've messed up and you've been uh, going left. And in, and in as much as we identify with Jonah's rebellion, like you, like I want you guys to feel the weight of this. We're Jonah in this story. Like, don't, don't think in your mind, I'm not Jonah. I would have obeyed. No, you wouldn't have obeyed. The only difference with Jonah's disobedience and Jonah's sin and our disobedience and our sin is that Jonah's got recorded in the Bible and our trifling stuff didn't. It's the only difference. If, if, if God was to record your mess in the Bible and we was to sit here and preach on your mess, you would be Jonah in this story. And so we identify with Jonah's rebellion. We identify with Jonah's sin. But here's the good news for us this morning. We also identify with the fact that God gave Jonah a second chance and he can do the same thing for everybody that is in this room. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Look at what it says. Arise, go to Nineveh. He's repeating the same words. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Although in chapter one, he said, call out against it. Their evil has come up before me. In chapter number three, it says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. God's grace is about to reach one of the Bible's most wicked cities. Told you guys that like this in like Sodom and Gomorrah was like junior varsity. Nineveh was varsity as it comes to wickedness. They were a godless city. They were they did not know God. They were a wicked. They were a violent city. But this brings up an important fact about the character of our God, that God is going to send Jonah to a wicked, godless city that was not a part of his original covenant. He's going to send his prophet there. This brings up an important fact. And the fact is that God's capacity to forgive you is greater than your capacity to sin. His, his grace is, you can't out sin the cross. His grace is, reaches so much further than our sin could ever reach. Let me give Bible, Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abound all the more. Now, that's good news for us, and so we can't out sin the cross. Of course, once you're saved, the expectation is that you'll be on a trajectory to look more and more like Jesus Christ. Those of us that have trusted in Jesus, that is the one thing we have in absolute common is that all of us are on the road of looking more like Jesus every day. And every day there's hope for us to overcome sin and walk with God faithful. And so God is faithful to forgive us. This text shows us that he's great. He's faithful to forgive even the furthest person. I mean, he calls Nineveh four times. He calls Nineveh in the book of Jonah a great city. Now, two of those times, he's talking about the population and the geographical size. But the other two times, he just says they're a great city. How can you call Nineveh 
the most wicked city in the scriptures, an entire book of the Bible dedicated, Nahum dedicated to talking about how wicked Jonah, uh, wicked Nineveh is. How can we call them a great city? Because God is able to see past their evil and see the potential in them actually walking with him. And God's capacity to forgive us is great. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us in the midst of our wickedness, in the midst of our sin, when we had no love for him. Let let me just, let me put this in perspective for you. Even your goodness is evil to him. Why Why can I say that? Because he's so holy. And because he's holy and dwells in unapproachable lights, our goodness can be an offense to him. But in the midst of that, knowing we needed a new righteousness, he's able to lavish that on us through the person and the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Christ died for you in the middle of your ugly sin. Like, think on your mind that sin. He died for that. I'm talking in the midst of you smoking weed, in the midst of you sleeping around, in the midst of you trying to bail out on your own righteousness. In that moment, Christ died for you and is able to give you a second chance. And so he calls him, he says, Nineveh's a great city. He says it four times. Two of those are just Simply, you're a great city. And if you think in this room, I'm going to move on from this point, but if you think in this room that your sin is the exception, can I assure you that it's not? Like, because that's what we do. We be like, man, surely God doesn't know what I did. Like, your sin is not the exception. Read the Bible. David. Like, look at, we walk through David's sin. Look at David's sin. David's sin was not no cushy sin. Like, he got, he sent a man to die after knocking up his wife. Is that too much? After getting his wife pregnant, he sends a man on the front line to die. That, that sounds like a, a scene from How to Get Away with Murder. <laughs> Thursday nights at 10 o'clock, just, just saying, just saying. I don't know if y'all watched last week, but it left us on a cliffhanger. Anyway, let me get back. Y- your sin isn't the exception. So, so we, we have people like David that writes most of the psalm, a man after God's own heart, God is able to lavish his grace on him and push him towards a life of walking with him. Look at Moses. Moses kills a man. Look at Paul. Paul, This is how you know Paul's a sinner. Paul goes so far as to call himself the chief of sinners. Like, you've never called yourself, I'm a chief of sinners. Like, Paul, and he writes 75% of the New Testament on his way to persecute Christians. And yet the Lord is able to lavish his love on him. Moses, I said, as a sinner, wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. A man that killed a man wrote that. So God is able to reach even the farthest person. He's going after the city Nineveh. Do your research on Nineveh, wicked city, and he's going after this city. Let's keep going. Verse number two. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days in journey, in breath. Verse number four. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. Here's his sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Like this rocks me. Jonah has been in a storm. Jonah has been rebellious. Jonah has been in, a, in the belly of a fish. He was thrown into the 
waves. He was drowning. The scripture tells us that weeds were wrapped around his head. He finally spit onto the shore, goes a day's journey into Nineveh, gets to Nineveh, and preaches the shortest message that I've ever seen. He preaches eight words. That's all he preaches. Like, there's no other sermon in the text that shows us a shorter sermon than this one. Yet God is able to use eight words to flip an entire city upside down. Not just flip the the humans upside down, but if you looked at the rest of the text, even the animals is in, they fasting and they got on sackcloth. The whole city is rocked by a sermon, by the preaching of the word. And when God wanted to do something amazing in a city, he did not send Donald Trump. When he wanted to do something, he did not send Hillary Clinton. He didn't send, he didn't tell the parachurch, get in there and do your best. He didn't tell them to, to do a million man march. When God wanted to do something in a city, he sent a man carrying his word. And the impact on the city has nothing to do with the style of Jonah's sermon, has nothing to do with the delivery of Jonah's sermon, has nothing to do with the length of Jonah's sermon. The impact of Jonah's message has everything to do with the fact that it was God's word. It was a word from the Lord. How do I get that? Because in chapter two, he says, call out against it the message that I tell you. So what Jonah is speaking is actually speaking the very words of God. This word is God breathed. This is the very breath of God. When I was a kid, it was one time when my my father was sitting at the table and he was reading his Bible and he was drinking his coffee and he asked me to do something. I got slick at the mouth. I ain't doing that. So I got slick. And my dad calls out to my mom and says, Barb, he's, he's having a stupid attack. And he starts running. He starts running around the house, literally fanning me with the Bible and going, God, breathe on him. Now, my dad's a little charismatic. I'm just saying he's a little charismatic. He's running around the house going like this, breathe on him, breathe on him. But that's exactly what the word of God does. It breathes on us. You can't read the text and not feel the very breath of God. The word of God is active and it is alive and it is sharper than any double-edged sword. He walks into Nineveh and preaches eight words. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't Facebook that he's going to be there. He doesn't take a selfie of himself saying, I'm on my way to Nineveh. Y'all get ready. Like revival's coming. He doesn't do any of that. What he does is, like, think about this. He doesn't have any political forces. He doesn't have, like, an army with him. He doesn't doesn't have any of that stuff. He doesn't have any type of clout. He doesn't have relationships built there. The only thing that he has is a sermon. It's eight words. And the sermon wasn't even, like, a happy sermon. Like, he goes in and preaches doom and gloom, and everybody's like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Like, everybody's broken at eight, eight little words. And what I love about the fact that God used eight words to rock this city is in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus mentions this story, he says that the entire city city repented at the preaching, not the Bible study, at the preaching of Jonah, the entire city is rocked. And then Jesus goes on to say, but something greater than Jonah is here talking about himself. So what am I saying? We can preach eight words, but Jonah could preach eight words and rock an entire city, but we can preach Christ. 
We can preach Jesus. We want to reach our cities. We want to see this racial tension taken care of. We must preach the word. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the very word. He says something greater than Jonah is here. So we don't, we don't, we don't gather just to gather. We don't gather because we have nothing else to do. The central part of our gathering is the word of God. We're talking about playing basketball next week. We're going to play basketball, but before we do, we're going to get in the Word. It's just that simple. And, and I encourage all of you, you, uh, you ministry leaders, when you gather, you've got to gather building on the Word of God. I pray that our church would, would burn with desire and burn with passion for the Word. We shouldn't be people in here that don't bring our Bibles, don't open our apps and read our Bibles. Like, how does a growing Christian go one day without reading his Word? The entire city repents the preaching of Jonah. O.S. Hawkins in his commentary on Jonah says, In my pulpit, I preach from the Bible for two reasons. First reason here is I'm not smart enough to preach anything else. If I preach on social issues, there are sociologists in my congregation that would know far more about it than I. But if I preach on political issues, there are politicians who know more than I. Second reason it's because I'm too smart to preach anything else. I know that God blesses his word and it will not return void. This is the very reason that we have built this church on the word of God. Literally underneath this carpet, underneath this paint is scriptures all over the place. Right here is Psalms 119. All over this church, even out there, we have scriptures because we want to symbolize the fact that we're building the church on God's very word. We don't build it on opinion. We don't build it on personality. We don't build it on great child care, great music. These things are important aspects of the church. But the central thing we build our church on is the word of God. Eight words. Eight words. That's all he preached. Eight words and the Lord used it. I say it all the time. Weak pulpits make weak churches. And weak churches make weak communities. We must preach the word. We must preach the gospel. We must preach Jesus. Jesus said in John uh, 17, 17, 17, 17, in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them through your truth, for your word is your truth. Paul picks it up when he tells Timothy, his young protege, his son in the ministry. He tells him in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. And then he gives him two times to preach it. Be ready in season and out of season. It's only two times to preach. In season and out. That literally means always, always. It's literally what it means. And so this is, there'll never be a time where we gather and it's like, well, let's just sing hymns and look at each other and hold hands and walk out. No, the Bible. We got to get into it. Because Jonah preaches eight words and the whole city is repenting because of the word of God. Let's keep going because I'm running out of time. Verse number five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Look at their response. So he preaches eight words. Look at what their, their response is. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The evidence that there was transformed lives in Nineveh was changed behavior. They didn't just say we're transformed and do nothing, but they were transformed and their behavior changed. So if you think, man, I can believe in Jesus, I can repent of my sin and just walk out and do the same old thing, you are sadly mistaken. When you repent, when you meet Jesus, your life changes. 
No one meets Jesus and stays the same. We meet Jesus and he deeply impacts our thoughts, our affections, our conversations, our relationships. Everything is rocked by Jesus. Nothing can stay the same. Bible says that they fasted. Fasting is literally a, a time that they set aside for abstaining from food. Then it says that they put on sackcloth. That's literally goat hair. It's coarse. It's uncomfortable. They put on goat hair, which was a sign of, uh, of repenting. They were transformed, and their behavior showed that they were transformed. Literally did a 180. They didn't do a 360. 360 puts them back in the same direction. They did a turnaround that was opposite way of they were going, and they walked the other way, and it showed up by their behavior. And so if I was to list out in this room, if I was to say, man, Keisha, let's put on these screens all of the sin that we used to commit before we met Jesus, some of us would be shocked. If I was to list my stuff up, first of all, the screens ain't big enough for my sin. If I list my stuff up, up on there that I was involved in before Jesus impacted and changed the trajectory of my life, it would, we'd have to keep looping it and over and over again and just watching it because Jesus changes us. We don't stay the same. But one thing I love about this culture of repentance in Nineveh that was created was that it didn't just allow for some people to repent, but the text tells us from the greatest of them to the least of them, everybody repented. From the king to the kids, everybody was repenting. Everybody. And we, we're in this new time where, especially church culture, culture, this Western church culture, we allow for members to repent, but don't allow for leadership to repent. But, but notice something in the text. The leadership of Nineveh, uh, the king of Nineveh repents, but he doesn't stop leading. How do I know that? Look at verse number seven. Actually, verse number six, it says, the word of the Lord reached the king and he arose from his throne, removed his royal robe. By the way, a royal robe, it, it, was, it was made of the finest material. It was representative of his, his position, his kingly position. He takes off his king's robe. The Bible says he removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth. So he's repenting and he's set in ashes, pointing towards repentance. And even though the king was repenting, verse 7 says he issues a proclamation. So he's still leading. Issues a proclamation that is published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast no herd, no flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Like even the animals are repenting here. He's putting them on a fast. But let the beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Like I wanna, I wanna know what the sound of Nineveh was. Like you hear cows mooing and like animals screaming out. You hear the people worshiping and trying to get themselves aligned with the Lord. The Bible continues to say, let everyone turn from his evil way and from his violence. We read this and like, oh, they just turned from their violence. No, they were wicked. Like I told you a couple of weeks ago that they used to conquer a city, take the flesh, take the skin off their enemies and use to stretch them as the tent walls of their houses. They're repenting of their violence in chapter and verse number eight. I love this question. Who knows? So literally what we have here is Nineveh ran and worked as though their salvation depended on them. But really they had faith to know 
that it really depended on God. They said, who knows? And that is exactly what salvation is. Jesus says that this story points to him. That's exactly what salvation is. You run hard to work as hard as you can to behave, but that doesn't bring salvation. Salvation comes by the sovereign grace of God, purely the sovereign grace of God. You bring nothing to the table of salvation except your filthy sin. It's the only thing we bring to it. God brings grace. God brings renewal. God brings transformation. And so these men literally said, who knows? Like, we can do all of this. We can fast. We can mourn. We can pray. But ultimately, our salvation is dependent on if God decides to grant us mercy. That's good. That's good theology right there. That's consistent with the rest of the Bible. We don't work towards this thing. We work hard and we behave because we're saved. We don't behave to be saved. God has already granted that to those who have trusted in Jesus through the work of the cross. He doesn't grant that to you because you got up at six o'clock and prayed. He doesn't grant that to you because you went through your 31 days of Proverbs. He doesn't grant that to you for that. That's great. Do that, but don't depend your salvation on it because salvation is based on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and it's based on the sovereignty of God. Who knows? I love the song that we sang right before I came up. God is over all. That's just simply me. That's good theology for he's sovereign. He, my grandmother used to say, God is in control. That's what that is saying. And so it says, who knows? And so God chooses us. We don't choose him. John 15, 16, Jesus says to his disciple, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. The Ninevites realized that they had a responsibility to get it right, but their salvation was 100% on Jesus. Not 100, 100% on God, that God would be gracious to save them. Look at his response. After they do all of this stuff, they said, who knows? God may relent, turn from his evil anger. I mean, from his evil, from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Watch God's response in verse number 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Wait a second. God saw that a wicked city repented, they changed behavior, and he forgave them? He gave them salvation from the destruction he said he would do to them? That's exactly what he did. Over 120,000 people. And even Jonah, like even Jonah is given a second chance, despite the fact that Jonah is rebellion, rebellious, and despite the fact that in chapter 4, Jonah's going to act a fool again. He's going to act a fool again in chapter 4, but yet God grants grace, grants mercy, lavishes love on Jonah and 120,000 people. He said, they said, who knows? God responded, I'm going to relent of this disaster, purely based on the fact that they repented. Don't downplay repentance in your life. Some of us just run hard. We think we can, and I'm not talking that fake repentance, which is, you know, I'm repentant. I'm saying sorry because I don't want to, I'm, I'm afraid of the potential punishment. No, repent because you hate the sin, because you love Jesus. You don't want to offend God. You don't want to defame his name. That is why we repent. This entire city repents. See, the beauty in, in the sermon that Jonah preached to them in, in verse number four. Yes, it was a doom and gloom sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
But the beauty is Nineveh didn't just hear the words overthrown, but they heard the word 40 days, which means they had time to get it right. And some of you may be in this room and maybe you're in this room and right now you haven't trusted Jesus. Like, I, I'm, I'm convinced that all of us in this room have not walked in here and placed our faith in Jesus. Can we just put that on the table? Every, we, see, the church has a bad habit of assuming everybody understands the gospel, assuming everybody's trusted Jesus. No, some people walked in here and are broken. Some people walked in here and you think you're saved. The truth of the matter is, have you trusted Jesus? If you haven't, the word overthrown is still hanging over your head. But if you do trust Jesus, 40 days is what the scripture, that, not literally 40 days, but what it shows us is that there's grace, even within a doom and gloom sermon of saying, I'm going to overthrow this city. I'm giving you 40 days to get it right. And they relented of the disaster that God said that he would do to them. Do you realize that God has given everyone in this room a second chance via the cross of Christ? Like all of us walked in this room and have messed up the first chance. And can I tell you how you messed up the first chance? You didn't, you didn't merely mess up the first chance because of your behavior, because of your sin. You messed up the first chance by being born. What am I saying? It's inherited sin. It was passed down from your father to his father to his father, tracing all the way back to the original sin of Adam. All of us in this room have screwed up the first chance. Does that not make us all feel like family? Like, let's get that out. We've screwed up the first chance. But just because you screwed up the first chance, the gospel shows us that the cross provides a second chance for you. And the cross wasn't plan B. The cross was plan A from the foundation of the earth. Before anything was created, he already set this plan in motion that all of us in this room that trust in Jesus will be saved. You're given a second chance by Jesus Christ. Is that not good news that you're, like, we take that for granted. We, we think that's common. We come and sing about it. We talk about it. We preach about it. We do communion and we remember it. But the truth of the matter is that you never lose your awe, the, your awe of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You're given a second chance in this room. Not given a second chance because you're so great, because you're so cute. Because you did the, you did the, the, the 31-day challenge. You're not, that's not why you're given a second chance. You're given a second chance because we're so much like Jonah. God says, I want that one. And doesn't give you the option to say no. It's called irresistible grace. If he wants you, he says, that's mine. Just that simple. That's mine. The one that is controlling the sea says, I want that person on my team. And so if you're in this room, you have a chance today to get it right. Compare chapter one, the first couple of verses, to chapter two. Like in chapter one, when, Jesus, when, when God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, their evil has come up before me. Verse number three then says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. He goes the wrong way, messes up the first chance. Compare that to chapter three. God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, the message I tell you. And look at Jonah's response. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. All of us in this room are granted a second chance this morning. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm convinced that, that some of us in this room are, are skating the fence. This, this message of a second chance for some of you is relief. Like you've been, 
you've been depressed over the fact that you've messed up the first one. Some of you are, are weighted down with the burden of your bad decisions. But today, through the message of Jonah chapter 3, we get to see that God actually does want to give you a second chance. And he cares not just about what's on your plate, the mission, what the, the calling, the assignment he has on you, but he actually cares about you. If he didn't, he would have wiped Jonah out. Some of, this, some of us in this room are, we walked in with a heavy load. We walked in wrestling. We walked in realizing that if Jesus Christ does not give us a second chance, we will be overthrown. It's a fact. But through the cross of Christ today, you have a chance to get it right. There may be somebody in here that, that doesn't, um, that wants to be honest and wants to say, man, I need to get it right today. We don't do altar calls every single week. But today I want to I wanna invite somebody up here. Not that there's any power up here, but I want to invite somebody to come up and say, publicly, I've messed up and I want to get it right today. I want to be able to be granted that second chance that Jonah was granted. Word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Lord, would you do that in my life today? And so is there anybody in here that can be honest that you've messed up the first chance and today you want to get it right? If that's you, would you slip your hand in the air? Every head bowed, every eye closed. I just want to get my life. I see that hand. I just want to get my life together. Maybe you're already a believer. I just want to, I want to, I want a fresh start. I want God to forgive me of my own foolishness. Those of you who have raised your hand, if you could be bold and just step down here. Step down to the front. If you raise your hand, if you could step down to the front. I just want to pray for you. Thank you for your boldness. Thank you for your boldness. Just step right here. Those of you who want to get it right, you want to have a second chance today. And while these are standing up here, there's another group that's here that knows that they are far from the Lord. If you walk out of here today, get hit by a car, you know that you're not going to be with Jesus. If that is you, would you slip your hand in the air? You want to say, I want to give my life to the one who has died for my sins. I want to trust in that Jesus today. The one that you sang about, the one that you preached about, the one you're about to do communion and observe his death, burial, and resurrection, that Jesus I want to trust today. That's you. Could you slip your hand in the air? Let me pray for these on the altar. Father, I am so overjoyed at the boldness of these that came down and said, I've messed up the first time. Truth is, at some point in life, everybody in this room, from the media booth to, to the kids' room, everybody in this room has messed up somewhere. We're all in need of your forgiveness. And Father, today I just want to pray for these and pray, oh God, that you would release them from the guilt 
of their bad decisions. Release them, O oh God, from the guilt, from the guilt and shame that they may even be feeling. But Father, help them to rejoice in the fact that you've given them a second chance, another chance to get it right. And Father, this time, my hope and my prayer, oh God, is that they would do with this, this chance what Jonah did with his second chance. For Jonah's second chance, oh God, the Bible says he arose and he obeyed exactly what you said. And I pray that you would set all of those that are on this altar, you would set them on the course and the trajectory of obedience. Thank you for their boldness. Would you work in their life and use them in a powerful way and use their bad decision of the first time, use that as a testimony for somebody else. Somebody else that's in the same boat as them, would you use them for your glory? You've used Jonah, a disobedient prophet. All of us in this room should rejoice at the fact that you use people that are broken to do powerful things. A man disobedient and on the run preaches eight words and 120,000 people are saved. Father, you're able to do this. Save from the disaster that you said you would do to them. And so as they walk back to their seat, my hope and prayer is they walk back with new confidence, new joy, confidence in the work that Jesus Christ has already done. And through that, would they maximize their second chance? It's in Christ's name we give glory. Amen.